0: 529th episode of Travel it Radio. I'm your host, Dan Schlossberg, along with my friend and co-host, Mary Ellen Nugent Lee, who is also our writer. And this is the 12th season of Traveler's Radio, the show that lets you enjoy the pleasures of travel from the comfort of your armchair.
1: Every week at this time, we talk to people representing destinations, hotels, airlines, railroads, car rental companies, and others in the world of travel and hospitality from authors and bloggers to broadcasters and publicists. If it's got anything to do with travel, it's got everything to do with Travelitch Radio.
0: And on this Veterans Day special, we're honored to discuss the Ghost Army of World War II. It's a great book about an inspirational group of GIs, and he's the president of the Ghost Army Legacy Project, Rick Beyer. Welcome, Rick, to Itch Radio.
2: Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And i got to say, 529 episodes. My hat is off to you guys.
0: Thank you. 12 years, just about the end of our 12th season. The Ghost Army of World War okay. II describes a perfect example of a little-known, highly imaginative, and daring maneuver that helped open the way for the Allies' final drive to defeat Nazi Germany. Tell us about this true story of deception and courage against great odds.
2: Yeah, so the Ghost Army is the nickname given to this unit, American Army unit called the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Really boring name for a really amazing unit because their mission was deception on the battlefield. Their mission was to fool the Germans about the size and location of of real units. Uh, And to do this, they fooled them using uh, inflatable tanks and trucks and artillery to fool enemy aerial reconnaissance. They used sound effects played out of massive speakers mounted on half tracks. They used radio trickery and all sorts of tools of impersonation. And they carried out, top secret, it was completely secret, they carried out 22 different deceptions starting a week after D-Day and going to the end of the war, basically on the front line, putting on a show for the enemy.
0: What was one of the Ghost Army's most elaborate piece of trickery?
2: Well, one of their, probably their most spectacular deception was the last one. It was called Operation Viersen, Uh and they were trying to uh, impersonate two American units, the 30th Division and the 79th Division, and make it seem as if they are crossing the Rhine River in one spot where the real divisions are actually trying to cross the river 10 miles to the north. So you have, essentially, the 1,100 men of this 23rd Headquarters Special Troops pretending to be the 30,000 men of those two divisions and trying to get the Germans to buy this deception. And it was so successful, they were actually awarded, a, uh, they got a letter of commendation uh, for this mission, and people said afterwards that it might have saved uh, thousands of lives. And that's just one deception. So you know that, that if they, even if that's their very best one, and they didn't save more lives than any other one, that one alone made having this unit really worthwhile.
0: Why did you and your co-author Elizabeth Sales choose to write about this particular incident in the war?
2: Well, uh, Liz Sales's dad was in the Ghost Army, um, and so that's where her interest started. Mine started uh, 19 years ago when I first heard about this story from the niece of another veteran, and started. She brought uh, his scrapbooks to a meeting, and we started looking through them, and I'm. A, was and am a documentary filmmaker. So I ended up making a, a, a documentary that was on PBS. And then I, in the course of that, I met Liz, and we decided we had so much material that couldn't fit into the documentary that we would uh, write a book. And the first edition of this book came out back in 2015, and, and, and I hope we get to talk about the fact that we've just come out in the last couple of weeks with a new a new edition of the book. And I do just want to mention in this, and it's very sad, uh, that Liz Sayles is no longer with us. She passed away uh, almost oh. two years ago now. So I know she would be, I know she's up there smiling and looking at this book and excited that we're still talking about the Ghost Army and, and still putting that out there, but, but she's not here on Earth with us anymore.
0: I know that there was a, a documentary, I believe, with, starring Ben Affleck. Is that the one you did?
2: Well, so the, the, the documentary is different from the attempt to make a movie with Ben Affleck. But I, I created a documentary. It's hosted by Peter Coyote, and it was on uh, PBS back in 2013. Uh, and it's still available on Amazon.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can still you search Ghost Darby on there, you'll find the book, you'll find the documentary film. Uh, and so that's still going strong as well.
0: Okay. Artists who came to prominence after the war, such as fashion designer Bill Blass, painter Ellsworth Kelly, and photographer Art Kane. We're instrumental in creating the phony convoys, phantom divisions, and make-believe headquarters. How are the Ghost Army's young GIs selected?
2: Yeah, so it is pretty amazing that they, they had all these artists in there. And the reason for that is when they were putting this unit together in December 1943, January 1944, it didn't have much time, right, because D-Day is only five months away. They're going to need these guys in England to be able to send them into action in France. So they took pre-existing units and put them together, sort of Frankenstein style, to make up the 23rd. And the unit they picked to do visual uh, deception was a camouflage unit, the 603rd Camouflage Engineers. And so this unit was loaded with artists. We've done bios of a lot of the guys that served in the Ghost Army, and we've figured out about 35 to 40% of the guys in this camouflage unit were artists. And that's like 100 and 130 artists or something like that. Uh, and so uh, 30 of them, 30 people just came from, from Pratt Institute. They either had graduated from Pratt or they had taken uh, some classes there. So that was a real feeder right in. And so you get all these people who then after the war become a famous artists. You mentioned a few, Bill Blass, Ellsworth Kelly, uh, art came but there's others as well uh, arthur singer who became a, a, a famous wildlife artist many others who weren't famous but had extraordinary careers and one of the things that they're doing during their time on the ground in, in europe is their painting and sketching and so you know the book as well as the documentary film features a lot of the sketches and paintings they have done, including some paintings from Ellsworth Kelly during the war that you just won't see anywhere else.
0: Hmm. It seems like it was long overdue, Rick, but President Biden finally signed a bill last year to grant the Congressional Gold Medal, Congress equivalent of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, to members of the Ghost Army. Representative Annie Custer, Democrat of New Hampshire, who sponsored the legislation, said so more than 75 years after defeating fascism in Europe, the time these soldiers received the highest honor we can award. What was your role in bringing about that honor?
2: Well, I was very deeply involved in making that happen. And just about the time that the book first came out back in 2015, as I was looking for a way to, I thought this unit should be honored. I thought it was unfortunate that because of secrecy, they had never been honored. And um, I seized upon the idea. Of the Congressional Gold Medal, one had recently been awarded to the Monuments Men. The Congressional Gold Medals had been awarded to other World War II units that for various reasons weren't honored at the time. And so I, I called up Annie Custer's office because Annie Custer and I went to Dartmouth together uh, and uh, got her on board, uh, uh, got Senator Markey on board with the help of some people in Massachusetts, and then we got Republican co-sponsors, and we started – down this road and you know i thought it would be pretty easy and it turned out to be really hard uh to get uh, the congressional gold medal because you have to get two-thirds of the house and two-thirds of the senate to co-sponsor the bill before it even comes to a vote so um we we managed to do that over a, a period of about seven years and president biden signed that legislation in 2022 in february of 2022 last year And actually, I just got word about five days ago that the medals are actually done because it's a custom-designed medal, and they make the medal itself, and then they make duplicates uh, that are for sale to the public. And we're now waiting on the Speaker of the House to schedule the medal ceremony, uh, which is the point at which then other people can buy duplicates, and the medal will be unveiled. But it's been a a long road, and it's going to end up being more than two years from the time that the president signed the bill to, to when we're going to have uh, a ceremony in Washington and unveil that medal.
0: Princeton Architectural Press has issued a new 2023 edition of your book with new photos, stories, and the gold medal campaign. Why did you feel it was important to update it now?
2: Well, you know, um, part of it was the fact that the gold medal was happening. And I, I actually uh, called the publisher and I said, you know, hey, we've learned all this stuff. Since the book first came out, i've met new veterans I've seen new new scrapbooks we've had letter collections that have been donated to us I've done research and discovered things about this unit and let's do a let's do a gold medal edition of the book and they said, "Great, but we're not going to call it a gold medal edition because then people will think that you won the gold medal and I said, "Oh okay, <laughs> fine, uh we don't have to call it that but uh but they were they were excited about it as well and so what we did is we uh, basically added a chapter to the existing book uh, to to sort of I, I say it's to bring the story up to date, but it's not it's not all about what's happened since then, but it's about what we've either learned since the book initially came out or it's about what happened since then, which is the actual gold medal effort. And I'm excited about it because I think when the gold medal is being awarded, I think that's going to generate a lot of publicity, and I think a lot of people are going to kind of come to this story for the first time. And so I wanted to make sure that the book that was available to them would be as up-to-date and as complete as possible. And so that's why I'm very, very excited about this new edition.
0: Your book is told through personal accounts and sketches along the way. How did you collect those?
2: Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, when we started out, I first met um, first veteran I really was in touch with, and I wasn't. I hadn't actually met him right away, but it was a guy named John Jarvie. Because his niece Martha Gavin is the person who introduced the story. Uh, to me. she uh, I, I got an email one day from a friend, and he said, oh, I've met this woman, Martha Gavin, and her uncle is in this crazy World War II unit. And do you think somebody should make a documentary film about it? Uh, and so I got, we got involved, and we went to the last reunion that this un, uh, unit had back in 2005, uh, and I interviewed six or seven uh, soldiers there, including John Jarvie and Irv Stempel and Al Albrecht and other people who, who are the familiar names to anybody who would watched the documentary film or read the book. Uh, and then what we did is we everybody who was at that reunion, we said, who else do you know? And then we started reaching out. My associate producer, Jacqueline Sheridan, did a lot of this uh, reach out, reaching out to other people and always saying, well, who else do you know? Who else do you know? And so eventually we put together a list of I don't know how many 30, 40, 50 veterans, Uh, and then we ended up picking 20 that we interviewed for the film and really, really focused on that. And then a lot of the rest of it has come from just uh, various contacts that people have made. They've heard about the project. They call up and say, oh, you know, somebody says I was in the unit and I I have this material and do you want to see it? Or, you know, my dad was in the unit. I get calls. get calls from people who go we just discovered that our dad who died 20 years ago was in this unit he never talked about it because it you know it was secret and so uh, over the years we've collected a lot of stuff and and I've donated a lot of that material to the uh, uh, National World War II Museum uh, and we still keep finding things I've got a couple of things here in my office that I have to process and get to the get to the museum because people are still donating stuff to us and, and, and we're still adding to the stuff that we, uh, that we have access to.
0: We're talking with Rick Beyer about his book, The Ghost Army of World War II. Mm.
1: Rick, is it true that the contributions of the Ghost Army were hushed up for decades after the war's end? Why was that?
2: Yeah, it is true. And uh, this, was, this was top secret stuff. So you're in the war, and it was, it was completely secret. They couldn't tell anybody. They couldn't tell other soldiers. Uh, they weren't supposed to write a poem about it or anything like that. And so come the war's end, uh, there was a little bit of some leaks. There were some articles about it at the war's end, but the Pentagon really wanted to hush this up. And a lot of the soldiers say they were told not to talk about it. For 50 years now not every soldier says that there's a little bit of argument there among some of the soldiers but many of them say that they were told to do that and many of them did keep quiet uh, for 50 years and the official history of this unit which is a um, kind of a foundation document for anybody who's writing or or telling the story um, was classified it was classified (laughs) and it was kept classified until 1996 and there was a soldier in this unit an officer And Fred Fox, who after the war is kind of a great story, he became a minister, he was a writer, he goes to work uh, uh, on the staff of President Eisenhower at the White House, and after he leaves the White House, he's trying to get this declassified, and he's got some pull. He gets a former Secretary of the Army involved in helping them, and they can't do it. So why can't they do it? Why is the army so determined to keep this classified? Well, you know they don't tell us that, but the answer would seem to be it worked really well and we might want to use it against the Russians. And we don't want to give away you know, details. You know, if we go to war with Russia, we don't want to give away details of how it worked or you know, how we coordinated all this deception because then that will give them clues where they can look for and say, oh, wait, wait a minute, this is the deception unit operating here, so we know that they don't really have any troops here. So that's why it was kept secret for so long. But, I, I mean, I know soldiers who, who died uh, uh, and, and didn't talk about it. I know people whose wives had died when I met them, and they said, oh, my wife never knew about this because I never told her. Uh, and all the time I, I hear from sort of anguished anguished families because they're like this is just amazing that their father was involved in this unit and they can't believe that he didn't share any of it with them
1: Hmm. well nick leo one of the last surviving members of the ghost army he lived in my parents hometown on long island and he just passed away at the age of 99 how many members of the ghost army are still with us yeah, I, I, I love
2: Nick Leo and uh we were very good friends and uh and I I just appreciate hearing his name and I can I can imagine I can I can recall immediately sort of sitting in his house with Nick and, and two of his sons and uh that this was the last time I saw him and chatting about the ghost star. I mean he lived long enough to know that the that the gold medal had happened and that was really awesome. Uh, we have uh currently <clears throat> um eight members of the ghost army are still surviving so that's out of the 1100 who served in the um, in the 23rd as well as the uh, 300 approximately who served in the 3133rd that operated in Italy as a separate uh, deception unit Uh, but all of the survivors are from the 23rd and out of those eight five of them are over 100 and the other three are you know 98 99 right so um if everybody keeps living they'll all be over 100 in another year and a half or so which is kind of why you know i think it's really important to get this gold medal ceremony happening well some of the soldiers who stood in this unit can still be there can go to the Capitol can stand up you know when they play the star-spangled banner and then and then you know, see the fact that this medal is being presented, and the actual medal goes to the Smithsonian, but then receive you know their own uh, duplicate of the medal uh, and, and and be honored in person. And that I hope it doesn't you know wait so long that you know uh, that that nobody can be there. So it's 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 touch and go. We have to see how that goes. But there are eight still with us.
1: Uh-huh. well. There are, you mentioned there are two U.S. Army units involved in the subterfuge, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops and the sister unit, the 3133 Signal Company Special. And that, you know, as you said, it totals more than a 1,000 men. How did the Army manage to keep the actions of all those GIs secret?
2: Uh, yeah, so they didn't have Twitter.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. That's part of the answer, right, that, technology worked in your favor. Listen, let me, first of all, just talk because cause people who have heard me talk a lot about the ghost army may be like going, the 3133rd, what's what's that? The 3133rd was a, was a signal company. It, it's it's actually the equivalent of the 3132nd, which is inside the 23rd. That's who's doing the sonic deception for the 23rd. The 3133rd is separate, though, and they operate in Italy, and they are doing uh, sonic deception as well as what we call special effects, which is putting on the bumper markings of the unit you're impersonating and the shoulder patches and all of that. And they're working with a British um, uh, company that's got inflatable tanks. So they are also a multimedia deception unit. And they are operating in Italy, and they, they only go into the war late in March of uh, 45, and they only carry out uh, two deceptions before the end of the war. So, so they're a smaller unit, and they don't do as much, but they are still part of the gold medal and still important to honor them. Now, how did people keep this secret? You know, some people say, oh, well, it's a different time, and you could never keep that secret today. And I would say I, I think the Army keeps a lot of secrets. I just, oh, don't, yeah. I just don't think we know what they are because i think that they're they're pretty good at drilling that into soldiers but i think that the that the advantage that they had was that people you know if somebody did talk about it like there was a soldier named sebastian messina who who, when they came home in july 1945 and before they were supposed to go to the pacific which got canceled because of the atomic bomb he talked to his hometown newspaper and when the war was over they printed an article about it and some other people picked up on it, but you didn't have an internet. You didn't have some place where that was going to live forever. So you could kind of just uh, kind of wait it out and, and sort of let it let it uh, let it die, let it die down. And we, as we've gone back and done research now, we have discovered there were a fair amount of articles, uh, not just from Sebastian Messina, but from other people. Uh, a lot of stuff in 1945. A lot of newspaper coverage. But, you know, you, if, 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 you, if your secret is out in the newspapers, you don't go, hey, you told our secret. We're going to arrest you because then everybody knows it's something important. So they let some yeah. time go by, let it pass, and, and now, uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and then it kind of faded away. And I think that's how they kept it secret for so long.
1: Hmm. Do you think today's armed forces would be able to achieve such feats?
2: I do. I do. I mean, I've spent a lot of time talking to the military. I've, I've spoken at Fort Bragg. I've spoken down at uh, ASOC in Tampa. I've gone to other places and, and uh, interacted with um, organizations of the Pentagon. And I think there's a lot of very, very serious people uh, there. And I have no doubt that they would be completely capable of keeping something very secret if it was uh, sort of important to do so. So I I think we can probably be sure that the Army is doing something today with deception, and we can be equally sure that we won't know what it is until, you know, 20 or 30 years from now.
1: We're talking with Rick Beyer about his wonderful book, The Ghost Army of World War II.
0: Rick, your book is lavishly illustrated with original paintings, sketches, maps, and photographs. Where are
2: the originals? Well, they're all over the place. They are in the homes of of families all across the country. Some of them have been donated to museums, and I've I've worked to see some of that happen. So the U.S. Army Art Collection has some. The um, World War II Museum has some. uh, Brown University's uh, um, uh, military uh, collection, the Ann S.K. Brown Collection, they have some. But most of them are held by the families, who you know, because this is something uh, that that they that they consider to be important. And I'll tell you honestly, I do worry about material that that families hold on to, because you know, somebody dies, and somebody else, you know, a child who doesn't really know too much about this, or a grandchild, inherits it and says, "What's this stuff?" Oh, I don't know. It's just some old thing from granddad. It's kind of boring, and throws it out. So I'm always working with families to say hey if you if you have any desire at all to donate this material, call me, you know talk to me, reach out to me because i will I will make sure that it gets to the National World War II Museum that we get it saved with the other material so that it'll be there for people in the future who are are um, you know who are going to be doing ghost Army research that they can find it all because I don't want it to all." slip away and and just just be gone. And I think about where we'll be in another 50 years for the stuff that stays in individual families, and I shudder about it.
0: So tell us about the TV shows and movies that have featured the Ghost Army.
2: (laughs) That would be a really short (laughs) answer, because, um, you know, Hollywood has been interested in the Ghost Army. But uh, hasn't managed to make a movie out of it. And uh, they, 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 I can actually tell you that um, people started trying to make a movie out of the Ghost Army back when it was still secret, back in the 1960s. I, I've seen the screenplay that was written called Instant Army, um, that is specifically mentions the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Uh, there were some screenplays written in the 90s then uh, my own book and documentary were uh, optioned um and we went through a whole thing which if you googled you know ghost army ghost army movie or ghost army ben affleck you could find out all about it but ben affleck was signed on to star and um and direct and we had a screenplay uh written um by some fairly well-known screenwriters and it all kind of fell apart um just before COVID, but not because of COVID, but it, but it fell apart sort of just before that. Um, and the only, I mean, the TV shows it's been on, I mean, there was, there was some drunk history episodes, uh, I think one, at least one drunk history episode that featured it. You've got a lot of news shows that have had it. But in terms of the fictional treatment of it, really still kind of waiting to see somebody really pick this up and run with it. And uh, it's something I'd love to see happen, but it certainly has not happened yet.
0: You attended recently when Luxembourg's Minister of Finance and the U.S. Ambassador to Luxembourg unveiled a monument outside the building that housed most of the Ghost Army unit between September 25th and December 22nd, 1944. Why is this important and what will visitors see if they go there?
2: Well, you know, uh, I think what's important there is that uh, the Ghost Army did spend three months Stationed in Luxembourg and Luxembourg is a big part of their story. They were going out to missions along the front and coming back But they were living in Luxembourg and I really felt like you know I had brought groups to see this building. We've gone inside We've gone into the chapel that became a law school library But that chapel is where our Marlena Dietrich played uh, when she played for the ghost army in 1944 uh, I've brought soldiers back into the rooms where they slept when they were there. And again, I just, you know, I have a very keen feeling that we don't want to let history just die. We don't want to lose the knowledge, have the people of Luxembourg lose the knowledge that this building was involved in this. So I worked really hard with the friends of Limpertsburg and that's the neighborhood it's in uh, and the U S embassy to put up this marker. And if you go there, I mean, what you'll see is the building. Uh, it's a big building, and right now it's it's been part of the University of uh, Luxembourg, but now it's shifting, so we don't know what it's going to be in the future. But you'll see this marker. It sits right in front of the building. Tons of people walk by there every day, and it tells very briefly the story of the 23rd and the fact that they were stationed in bivouac in that building. And so I think that that's an important way for the story to be remembered is in English and French so virtually everybody in Luxembourg speaks one of those languages. So we're just keeping that story alive there.
0: Okay. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So just a couple of quick ones. Any collector of military books will find the Ghost Army of World War II, an essential addition to their library. How to travel with radio listeners get
2: a copy? So the easiest way is to go online, let your fingers do the walking, and you can go to Amazon.com. You can go to BarnesandNoble.com. You can go to Indigo. You can go to lots of different places online where you can find the, the book. And I just always say search Ghost Army, but search the word updated with that so that you, uh, you make sure you get the new edition with the dark uh, blue uh, spine as opposed to the old edition.
0: Our special guest tonight has been Rick Beyer, co-author of The Ghost Army of World War II. Thank you for being our guest on Travel it Radio.
2: It is my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: We both enjoyed it. And that is it for this edition of Travel it Radio. Next week, same time, same station, same writers, same announcers. And our last show of our 12th season, we'll go to St. Augustine for a special holiday preview with Barbara Golden. Now, this is Dan Schlossberg, along with Ellen Nugent Lee, saying thank you for your time this time. Until next time, good night and stay safe.